How Should Liberals Think of Civil Society? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jacob Levy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jacob Levy. Jacob is Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Professor of Political Science, and Director of the Lynn Center at McGill University, and Senior Fellow at the Niskanen Center. His areas of research include liberal and constitutional theory, federalism and local self-government, multiculturalism and nationalism, freedom of association, and the history of political thought, especially centered on the 18th century and Montesquieu. He's the author of many books and articles, including Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, and The Multiculturalism of Fear. You may remember the last time he was a guest on The Curious Task in our third ever episode, where we talked about whether a liberal society needs to be democratic. Today, we'll be talking to him about the themes found in his book, Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom. Jacob, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me back. So, in each episode, as you know, we start with a question and go wherever the answers lead us, so let's kick it right off. I'll toss it to you. How should liberals think of civil society? Civil society, as we talk about it in the 21st century, um, is very concerned with the status of intermediate groups. It's the sphere of voluntary associations, uh, typically characterized by social scientists as being this, uh, the sphere of organizations that are neither directly part of the state nor directly part of the for-profit market, um, with a couple of ambiguous cases that we'll talk about later on, political parties and labor unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, it's the sphere of, we'll distinguish between secondary and tertiary associations. Secondary associations are membership associations outside the household, outside the family, the things we join and belong to that, again, are not part of the market and not part of the state. Our universities, our churches, our clubs, our recreational groups, uh, the those things that help provide our life with its activities, our pursuits of the good our hobbies, our spheres of life in the nonprofit world. Uh, Tertiary associations are nonprofit associations in which people don't actually invest their time. Um, They they don't go and take part in an in-person way as members. Rather, they sign up for membership lists, they get on mailing lists, They write occasional checks. They sign occasional petitions and letters. Um, These are characteristically lobbying associations or uh, anything from environmental groups to ideological groups outside the structure of political parties um, to associations to lobby for retirees or the aged or children, uh, organizations that people don't spend their evenings on but they might spend their money on. Together, secondary and tertiary associations make up what social scientists talk about as civil society. And in liberal democratic and constitutional states, civil society has come to be understood as a vitally important source for maintaining liberal democratic culture, liberal democratic and constitutional constraints on state power, as well as providing a direct source of uh, meaning and engagement for what people do in their lives. And this is what you call intermediate groups in your work. That's what I call intermediate groups, uh, though 
I mostly talk about secondary, not tertiary associations as intermediate groups. And in order to talk fully about civil society, we'll want to talk about both. One thing that I thought was really great at the beginning of your book is that you outlined it's important to always remember that the discussion about intermediate groups is not always about how the group interacts with, let's say, the state or another group. It's also interesting to remember the fact of and deal with the idea that the groups also have a variety of internal mechanisms of dealing with their own conflicts or uh, dealing with their own members and things like that. So perhaps you can comment a bit about that, because I find that a lot of people do sort of forget about that. We think of a group interacting externally, but not always how the group works internally. That's right. And I think that an excess of attention to tertiary associations is partly to blame here. Mm. Uh, we think about lobbying groups. We think about the environmental club that we might join right. as primarily being engaged in lobbying and letter writing and public campaigning. But secondary associations, churches, universities, recreational societies, the traditional example from social science in the 1990s was bowling leagues, uh, <laughs> any of the things that we join in person homeowners associations, condominium associations. Um, they are internally rule-governed organizations. Um, typically, for that list that I just gave, they are formal. They're formally legally organized, and they have bylaws that members need to abide by. Uh, but I think we can talk very similarly about religious and cultural groups that might not be formally incorporated, but have strong bodies of internal norms here's what it's like to be one of us. Mm. Here are the norms that you follow in order to be one of us. Um, that, I think, is also an important secondary group or secondary association. It's also a part of civil society. And across all of those, from the pretty instrumental, like the condominium association, to the very personal and meaningful, like um, the unincorporated religious community, uh, across all of them, the struggle about making sure that the group perpetuates itself, making sure that people continue to want to be members in ways that uphold the norms, even if the norms evolve, but that where the norms evolve in a relatively continuous way, not a disruptive way, uh, that, that marks out our lives in secondary associations as being partly restricted. We join groups in order to be able to do things with our lives. We join groups in order to be able to worship in common, in order to go bowling, whatever. Uh, but in order to do things together, we also abide by rules together. Mm -hmm. And we therefore take part in a kind of localized version of political life that involves the business of making, enacting, and enforcing rules, however formally or informally that might consist of in the organization at hand. And you talk about as well how groups can then protect, in some cases, individuals, and in other cases, harm individuals. Now, before we get into some specific examples, maybe you could just take that at a high level and explain how a group can either be a protective uh, entity or a harmful one to individuals. So given the way that I just framed it, the uh, the restrictive face comes to mind first because the organizations are constituted by rules. What it means to be a member of a condominium or homeowners association is to have a requirement to pay regular fees and a commitment to abide by the bylaws of the condominium or homeowners association about things like your noise level, the aesthetics of the outside of your house or what you're able to put on your door how many people, how many pets. Um, you're, you're agreeing to a set of rules. And there are a set of rules that are 
more restrictive than the laws of the state. In order to join that society, you are locally giving up rights that you would have just as a citizen. As a citizen, I have the right to paint my house, mauve, but as a member of this gated community, homeowners association, I waive my right to paint my house mauve. Right. Or to have 17 cats or to have parties late at night in excess of what the local community, the, the local city laws would allow. More dramatically, in the case of any religion, there are behavioral and or belief norms. There are rules that I have to follow in order to be a Jew or a Muslim or a Protestant or a Catholic. Um, there are rules of different kinds. Again, some of them are behavioral, some of them are belief-based. But all of them are rules that just the free citizen of a liberal democratic society doesn't have to follow. Right. I don't have to take communion in order to be a Canadian. I do have to take communion in order to be a Catholic in good standing. I don't have to refrain from eating pork in order to be a Canadian. I do in order to be an Orthodox Jew. What kind of clothing to wear, all those kinds of things. Those are norms that we have to abide by in order to be part of our secondary associations. Um, I have long rants elsewhere about the norms that we have to abide by to be part of a university um, and mm -hmm. the rules that structure a university even as a community of discourse, even though there's very considerable protection for the free exploration of ideas, it is a structured freedom, it's structured according to norms of scientific and disciplinary inquiry. They're norms that prohibit a lot of things you're allowed to do out in, out in public. You're allowed to lie out in public. You're allowed to have a novel ghostwritten out in public. Within the context of the university, we call ghostwriting plagiarism, right. and we expel people or fire people for it. Right. Um, all of these organizations are constituted by rules, and those rules can be more or less restrictive, and they can feel more or less restrictive than the members want at any particular time. So as a member of lots of organizations, I might spend a lot of time running into rules that are stopping me from doing something that I, as an individual, want to do in that moment. I might understand myself to be a believing, practicing Catholic, and I might want to use contraception. Um, and so I experience the Catholic prohibition on contraception as a kind of restriction or limitation. Mm. Even though I don't want Catholicism to be contentless, I want there to be Catholicism that has rules and structures. I don't like that rule. I don't currently want to abide by that rule. Those can be very restrictive. Mm -hmm. They can be internally discriminatory in many religions, probably most religions. Um, there are strong traditions of internally discriminatory rules differentially governing the behavior of men and women, boys and girls. Um, and what it is to be a member of those organizations or societies is partly to encounter those rules and to try to live under them and to reconcile oneself to them or to change them such as the organization allows internal change, but that is not always especially fast or especially easy. Uh, so all of that is the restrictive face. Um, but the organizations also provide shared political power uh, because organizational capacity is a very important political resource, shared political power for protecting the ability of the members to do the things that they have joined together to do. That they're organized religions, that's one of the things that protects religious liberty. 
you have churches and the kind of surrounding tertiary associations built on top of churches and religious organizations that make sure that they're willing to take the state to court if the state violates religious liberty. Um, the state is a powerful organization in its own right. It's arguably the most powerful organization within any given society. Right. Uh, and if confronted with a world of just separated, atomized individuals, there's not much to stop it. Only other organizational weight can stop it. Uh, and the world of civil society, the world of secondary and tertiary organizations, is what that ends up looking like. And so the associations protect the liberty of their members to do the things that the association is for at the same time that the associations are structured by internal rules that their members can experience and encounter as unduly restrictive. And I think that's a great way for us to jump right into two different ways you can look at freedom and intermediate groups and individuals in the interplay. So we're talking about pluralism and rationalism. Let's, let's start with pluralism. What does this thought process look like and how we can view groups and, and individuals? So I, I use pluralism to name one history of liberal thought, um, though I think that there are pluralist and rationalist traditions in other ideologies. I think there are pluralist and rationalist conservatisms and socialisms as well. Um, in either case, pluralism is the tradition that emphasizes the enabling and the freedom protecting face of our organizational life. Seeing the power of the state as being a, an especially important threat to the freedom of people who live under state power and therefore seeing the, the capacity of organizations to protect us as being an especially important part of the social theory that underlies the political position. So to be a pluralist liberal is to be a liberal who looks at churches or religious organizations and sees a site where people can pursue their lives, their projects, their beliefs, can pray in common according to their lights, and organizations that will protect their liberty to do that against state incursion and to build a political and social theory out of resources like that to say, what we want to see in order to see a free society is to see a rich and vibrant civil society filled with associations that have meaningful organizational strength, filled with organizations in which people really do invest their time and their energy, not just a world of a democratic state filled with individual voters interacting with the state one person at a time. To everyone listening, if you haven't read Jacob's book, the, the middle section, the, the large middle section pretty much takes you on sort of like a historical tour of different uh, key figures in political thought and, and their rationalist and pluralist tendencies. And obviously, we're not going to basically read the book here today. But if you could, you know, point to a few, uh, for instance, uh, key figures that had more pluralist tendencies and give a few examples, those, that'd be great. And then we'll, we'll jump into rationalism and do the same. So the, the, the most important figures in the history of pluralist liberal thought are Montesquieu and Tocqueville. Montesquieu, arguably the first real liberal, uh, building on earlier modern traditions uh, uh, that emphasized the ability of intermediate groups, of cities, of guilds, of universities, and of the aristocracy to resist increasingly absolute and increasingly centralizing monarchs, the ability to resist figures like Louis XIV or figures like the Tudor kings in England. 
Uh, Montesquieu took those intellectual tools that had been developed by his predecessors, who I refer to as the ancient constitutionalists, and joined them to a theory of the rule of law and a theory of the importance of commerce that I think allows his theory to then be meaningfully identifiable as a liberal one, one that is concerned with the liberty of all in society, not only of the aristocracy, and that puts the organizational balancing of the monarchical state on one side, cities, provinces on the other, uh, puts it to work to try to defend a generalized kind of liberty in society under the rule of law. Tocqueville, famously a century later, almost a century later, worrying about whether the new kind of democratic states would pose a risk of centralization and of absolutism even more dramatic than that that had been posed by the absolute monarchs of the early modern era, looked to the early Republic of the United States and said, even though there is no aristocratic privilege there, even though there is not the tradition of urban or provincial special liberties that made up the ancient constitution, the Americans have recreated something that can serve a very similar purpose. And what they recreated is the beginning of what comes to be referred to as civil society in later uh, social science literature. That is the world of voluntary associations. Um, you have free individuals who might just be at the mercy of a centralized democratic state, but they refuse to live at the mercy of a centralized democratic state. Instead, they create new organizational tools, the right for just ordinary citizens to come together in pursuit of whatever projects they wish to pursue and to create new permanent organizational forms and really devote their time and their energy and their lives to upholding those voluntary associations. Tocqueville thought that if we were lucky, the modern democratic state might be appropriately counterbalanced by this rise of pluralistic voluntary associations in something the way that the early modern absolute monarchs had been counterbalanced by the privileged orders of the Ancien Regime. Um, Tocqueville was not optimistic that that would always be true. He was definitely not optimistic that a democratic France would be able to recreate uh, what the Americans had developed. But if there was hope to be found, he thought, it lay partly in that. Let's jump over to rationalism and switch gears to that. So what does a rationalist liberal think? So rationalism I use in a specialized sense, and I'm going to ask the listeners to listen to the next couple sentences carefully because otherwise the rest of the time is going to be very confusing. Mm -hmm. Rationalism is not merely the use of reason. Rationalism is not the opposite of superstition. It is not the opposite of conventionalism. It is not the opposite of something like fantasy or imagination. Rationalism I'm using uh, as the ideology of rationalization, the process of organizational uh, transformation, something we find discussed at great length in the work of Max Weber in particular. Uh, it is a process whereby states expand and they expand their systems of rules in order to make their whole internal governing structure clear and rational. The process of rationalization is the process of eliminating competing sources of laws or rules that would make it difficult for the rational legislator 
to pass a unified rational system of law governing the whole society. Uh, the rationalist liberals are those who, from the same era as Montesquieu, uh, those who worried about the arbitrariness, the inequality, the discrimination, as well as the sometimes superstitious and customary character of the bodies of rules that we find in all of the intermediate groups and thought that in order for us to be free, we needed powerful states that would subordinate the intermediate groups and would tame their systems of internal rules, making them as close as possible to the rules that govern a liberal democratic society as a whole. Uh, so the rationalist liberals are not looking for counterbalances to state power. They are indeed looking for an active energetic state that can break what they take to be the local despotic power of especially elites who govern in all of the localities, in the regions, and in the intermediate associations. Um, in Montesquieu's own time, his counterpart as a rationalist liberal is Voltaire, uh, famous for the phrase, écraser l'infâme, destroy the, the infamous thing, which is to say the church. And to break church power is, as far as Voltaire is concerned, the absolute prerequisite for establishing anything like a regime of modern liberty. Uh, it is the power of the church over education, over minds, and over bodies in the persecution of heretics and the persecution of apostates and the persecution of people who convert. Um, it's the power of the church to act as an inquisitor. That is the key threat to liberty in the modern era. And so Voltaire looked at the way that an absolute king in England, Henry VIII, had broken the power of the church, taking what had been the Catholic church governed by the pope and turning it into the Anglican church governed directly by the state said that is going to be necessary for any society that wishes to be free in the future. That is something that we in France will need to do. We will need to break the power of the church in something the same way that England has broken the power of the church. Uh, if we don't do that, then the grip the church has in its internal rules and governance, which is not subject to legislative interference by the state, the state can't determine the internal rules of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. uh, will make it impossible for us to live freely in the future. And so he didn't seek counterbalancing against the state. He sought uh, what critics have termed enlightened despotism and what he and his friends would have referred to as enlightened absolutism, an increase in the absolute power of centralizing monarchs so that they could break the power of those elites who stood in the way of a rational legal order um, centrally, including the elites of the church. And one thing I think that was really great in your book that you did is you made the point a few times in, in different in different ways throughout the book, especially when you're doing the historical tour, that it is a mistake to think that we can neatly sort key liberal figures into one bucket or the other. They all they may lean more one way or the other, 
but they often display um, in some areas more rationalist tendencies or pluralist tendencies. You had some great stuff on John Stuart Mill in there as well to say, uh, you know, for all his pluralism in some areas, he was very rationalist in others. So, so I think that was a very important point that as, as someone listening to this or reading your book should keep in mind that the goal in understanding rationalism and pluralism certainly is to say, oh, uh, take all our liberal figures and sort them neatly into each box because then that won't be very helpful, I don't think. That's right. Uh, he, to To be a rationalist liberal while still being a liberal is to still recognize some space for freedom of religion and freedom of association. It's not to wish to stamp them all out. Mm -hmm. This is partly just definitional. If you actually want to stamp out all religious groups literally, then we're not going to understand you as a liberal. And conversely, um, if you seek to abolish state legislative authority in favor of only the local dominance of organizational forms, then you're not doing politics in our modern sense at all and you're not engaged in uh, an ideology about what the state should do and liberalism is an ideology about what the state should do. But moreover, if what you're concerned with is liberty and you are at all a nuanced social observer, it's not going to escape your notice that organizations at both levels, secondary associations and the state, can sometimes have excessively restrictive rules, sometimes have excessively dominant elites and an excess of power. And so what we find over the course of the history of liberal thought, when we focus on the interesting thinkers, Montesquieu and Voltaire, Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill, is people who are genuinely struggling to find right balances and struggling to keep their eye on both sets of problems at the same time. I do think it's difficult. It's difficult to avoid lapsing more or less into one side or the other. Um, and I don't think that we find examples in retrospect of liberals of whom we could say, they got it just right. They walked <laughs> the tightrope perfectly. Right. I don't think there's going to be such a thing as walking the tightrope perfectly for reasons that we can talk about later on. Um, but But yes, I do try to stay attentive to the ways in which thinkers I'm classifying as broadly speaking, pluralist or rationalist liberals are never only that. As, as you read the front end of Jacob's book, if you do, and as you're listening to this and starting to absorb the, the difference between pluralism and rationalism, I'm sure a lot of, of people, they start to think, okay, well, I'm more, am I more of a rationalist? I'm more of a pluralist. There's a few sort of default approaches that people sometimes take to, you know, sort of reconcile all these concepts and, and their interplay. And uh, at the beginning of the book, you address them and speak to the reader and explain why they don't quite work as well as sometimes people think on the surface. And these two approaches are the pure liberal theory of freedom of association, you label it that, and then congruence. So let's take the first one first and the second one second, but tell us what these approaches are and why they don't solve all of our problems. Let's see how far we can get even just in just laying them out. So the pure theory of freedom of association is a deductive account that says, whatever I have the right to do, as a free individual liberal citizen, we have the right to do together. And whatever I have the right to refrain from doing, we have the right to commit to refraining from doing. So I have the right to wear the clothes that I want. I have the right to wear scarves on my head or a hat on my head. If I have that right, then we have that right. And if we have the if I have the right to refrain from walking around with my head uncovered, then we have the right together to make that a rule governing our shared life. Uh, this allows us to derive 
very considerable uh, associational freedom governing almost everything in life. It doesn't allow everything, and it very straightforwardly defeats some of the traditional reductio ad absurdums uh, about capacious theories of religious liberty. I don't have the right to murder a child, so we don't have the right to get together and have child sacrifice be part of our religion. However, for things that I have the right to do or refrain from doing, we have the right to have an organization making it a rule that we do or refrain from doing, or believe or refrain from believing, or say or refrain from saying. I have the right as a free liberal, a free citizen of a liberal society uh, to denounce God and embrace Satan and all his works. Right. I also, however, have the right to refrain from doing that. Therefore, when we form a church, we have the right to say, one of the rules of the church is you don't stand up in church and denounce God and embrace Satan and all of his works. Uh, it therefore is not going to count as a restriction on my liberty, a restriction on my freedom of speech, or a restriction on my religious liberty when the church tells me, don't stand up in the middle of the church service and say, hell Satan. Uh, there's a kind of simple-minded view of my liberty that would treat that as a problem. The pure theory of freedom of association builds on what I think the correct uh, moral elements of how to understand all of this say, no, it's actually no real restriction on my liberty at all. Because if we are going to have the freedom to worship in common together, if we're going to have the most basic kind of religious liberty, we have to be able to agree with each other about things that we will do together and refrain from doing together. That that's that's the pure theory. Congruence, I think, is is built on an intuition that isn't right, but that turns into a, a social theory that we can understand where people go with it. Congruence is a theory that says the internal organizations, the internal life of organizations, must be governed by the same rules and restrictions that govern the liberal constitutional state. I have the right to due process of law when I'm confronted by the coercive power of the state. Therefore, I ought to be protected by due process. I ought to have the right to representation. I have the right to confront witnesses against me when I'm being accused of violating the internal rules of an organization. I have a right to freedom of speech. It is wrong for the state to take away my freedom of speech. Why? Well, because of something morally to do with me as a free moral agent, as a dignified autonomous person, I have the right to speak my mind. Therefore, surely it is also wrong for other actors in society to take that away from me. The intuition here is, well, just as it's wrong for, for the state to kill me, for the state to enslave me, so is it wrong for any other social actor to kill me or enslave me. Generalizing from that to Therefore, any rule that would be impermissible for the state to have is impermissible for subordinate organizations within society to have. As I say, I think that's actually a mistake, but it's a mistake that people back their way into because being citizens of liberal democracies, having learned sets of norms and habits and rules about what it means to be a free person, mm -hmm. we encounter a real dissonance when then we go join some organization that seems to treat us worse than we think a free person is supposed to be treated. 
to be told you can't speak your mind, because you can't believe what you want to believe, that does offend something in the sensibility and sense of self of a free citizen of a liberal society. Right. And to offend that, that's that's a valid source of a moral intuition that they, then gets turned into a kind of mistaken theory that can't make sense of associational or organizational life. So it's that jump from that intuition, which may be good, to the idea that like, for instance, if the church is going to kick you out and they have the right to do that, we start saying, wait a minute, you can't kick me out until we do a fair trial and I get a lawyer and et cetera. And, and this is where that, that jump you're saying, or, that's the or, mistake. Or they can't kick me out at all for having contrary beliefs. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Full stop, right? They can't kick me out. Yes. I have freedom of speech here. I'm screaming about Satan in my pew. And that's, that's right. we have a congruent society. I should be able to do that here, freedom of speech. Yeah. I think that provides a great backdrop. And this is the time for our break. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task and I'm speaking with Jacob Levy. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Sabine Elchidiak, Travis Smith, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking with Jacob Levy. So, Jacob, I think the first half of our discussion provides a really great backdrop for all the concepts we we're discussing today. So, I think we can jump into some illustrations. The idea of political thinkers, people forming governments, even if we go to the United States, which we will in a second, uh, trying to, like you said, walk that tightrope well or perfectly between rationalism and pluralism. That's, we probably can't point to anyone that has done that or any entity that's done that perfectly. And uh, you, you do some illustrations in your book to show that, you know, even. Sometimes uh, societies or structures that we may be taught on the surface are perfect, either in a pluralist or rationalist sense. There's there's always clashes and there's always things we can look at. One example that you uh, have in your book is the Society of Cincinnati. And I yes. really, really enjoyed that example. So how about I just toss it to you, chat me up about that, take us through the whole thing. What was the Society of Cincinnati and why was, why was this a problem? The Society of Cincinnati was formed uh, immediately after the War of Amer American Independence, the American Revolutionary War. And it was a society of the officers of the Continental Army, the American Army. It raised immediate concerns that it was the beginning of an American aristocratic class. There were badges of membership. There were fancy gold and jewel-encrusted medallions that became part of the society's property. Uh, there was a strong connection with, indeed a branch in France, which had been the United States' ally during the war. Um, France was, of course, a monarchy with a very strong nobility, and uh, the French noble, the Marquis de Lafayette, had been an important part of the American Revolutionary Army. Uh, France was the patron of the army in an important sense and became the patron of the Society of Cincinnati. The aristocracies of medieval and early modern Europe were in their origin officer classes. They were the warlords. They were the chieftains and officers of the armies of the various conquering kingdoms. In England, uh, it was William the Conqueror's officer class that became the great nobles and founded the great noble houses 
that ruled over rural England for centuries thereafter, and their families are still the great noble houses of England to this day. Similar stories can be told in France and elsewhere. To have been part of the officer class, part of the elite of the military, that's where nobilities came from. If you're an American Republican, small r Republican, who thinks that you've just fought a war for independence against monarchy, and that one of the key things about the American Democratic Republic is that there's no monarchy and no aristocracy, to see George Washington, general of commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, and his officer class forming a society together that they characterized as being a fraternal order. They were people who'd gone through the war together. The kind of thing that we now associate with an organization like the Veterans of Foreign Wars that we don't think of as being politically problematic. But if you see the whole officer corps of the army joined together in this way that's connected to aristocratic monarchical France in this way that has special badges of membership. And disconnected from any government body or anything And disconnected like that. from any government body, self-constituting. Mm -hmm. Self-constituting in a way that we would now understand to be associational freedom, but there wasn't yet that kind of culture that Tocqueville's going to talk about in America 50, 60 years later. There aren't a lot of associations. Then it raises suspicions. And as in the first decade of the American uh, Republic, one of, it emerges that one of the most important political disputes is over paying the pensions of members of the Continental Army. Um, the, you know, the central government of the United States before the 1787 Constitution doesn't have independent taxing power. It doesn't have considerable resources at its disposal. And the veterans of the Continental Army strongly think that they are owed a long-term debt of their pensions. Um, the capacity of the Society of Cincinnati to act as a political force, not just a fraternal organization where people relive their war stories, uh, starts to look deeply dangerous. There was a strong American understanding and memory that one of the ways in which Republican, Democratic Republican governments have fallen in the past was to military power. The experiment with democratic government in England in the mid-1600s fell apart because General Oliver Cromwell, in command of Parliament's army, didn't long allow Parliament to continue to govern. He eventually takes over as Lord Protector, which is, say, effectively military dictator. And in older historical memory, which the Americans were obsessed with, the Roman Republic had fallen not to hereditary power in the first instance, but to military power. Julius Caesar is a popular general, and he leads his popular general into Rome, and his heirs and successors are the military power, and they destroy the Republic. So the concern, the Society of Cincinnati, this veterans of foreign war style organization is going to become the beginning of an aristocratic class and or a source of military threat because they will be able to command armed force to go seize the resources from the central state to make sure their pensions get paid. Uh, it, it becomes extremely acute. Um, it's so acute that it becomes a near crisis by the time that Washington is also supposed to be leading the Constitutional Convention of 1787. 
Uh, there's very widespread opposition to the society of Cincinnati. There are state laws that start to, as it were, nationalize the society's resources or start to prohibit it from handing out its titles. Uh, Washington comes to find it to be such an embarrassment that he worries that he can't remain honorary president of the Society of Cincinnati and do his work at the Constitutional Convention at the same time. He tries very hard to walk a tightrope here, tries to resign from the Society of Cincinnati, eventually doesn't, but stops taking part in it in its meetings altogether. Um, and this is something that divides people who were otherwise politically more or less aligned with each other. Hamilton is a key member of the Society of Cincinnati. His membership in the American Republic was very much mediated through his uh, service in the Continental Army. Uh, but a number of the other key American founders, including Madison and Adams, uh, hadn't been officers of the army and were not members of the Society of Cincinnati and were suspicious in all of these ways, that it was an attack on the ability of the American Republic to be Republican. They had a kind of congruence worry. Not everyone can join the Society of Cincinnati. Free citizens who ought to be able to go about being free citizens of a republic didn't have the right history. They're not free to associate with They're this not group. free to associate with the Society of Cincinnati. And indeed, um, in the early stages, they did eventually get rid of this. But in the early stages, membership in the society was going to be hereditary. Mm. Um, as indeed remains true to this day, I don't know whether this is true in Canada, but uh, there are organizations in the United States, uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Daughters of the Confederacy. They're organizations of the descendants of people who served in particular armies at particular times. That was built in the Society of Cincinnati's constitution, that membership after the first generation wasn't going to disappear just because all the officers died. Membership was going to descend through their family lines. That looks like an awful lot like an aristocracy. Right. Uh, it looks like the beginning of something hereditary that's hostile to the Republican principle. Uh, and the pushback against the Society of Cincinnati was so sharp in so many states at once and put Washington into such a precarious political position that the society had to significantly amend and alter its founding rules and documents. And still, it became politically sharply marginalized. One thing that you also touch on in the book is that a lot, a lot of the suspicions and a lot of the trouble starts when you not only have an organization like this, but an organization like this that is also international in nature. And you also mentioned the Freemasons in your book. So it, it's, it's not just the fact that we have this fraternity or this, this group in our country and they have their own rules. Like, obviously, that does cause a lot of suspicion on its own. But then when you sort of sprinkle on top the fact that it, a brotherhood or uh, any organization could be international as well. This is where a lot of the suspicion starts. So I remember, I, I think that was like a brief mention. I don't think you spent a section on that, but I remember that was a really interesting point you brought up to tie that all up is that now we're in even bigger trouble in the mind of rationalists or those who are leaning more towards the congruence thing. Yeah, violations of congruence can take a lot of different forms. And I'll, I'll talk about the Freemasons in a second, but any, sure. any transnational organization in some sense violates congruence because congruence says, we want all organizations to mirror citizenship. And if you have a transnational organization, then it tells people, well, your fellow Catholic believer in a different country is in, in some important way your fellow. And citizenship doesn't tell them that. Citizenship tells them you're someone who doesn't share your religion but is a co-citizen of the same state. That's relevantly your fellow. 
any transnational organization just has a different membership shape. Mm -hmm. It is non-congruent just by right of that, even if it is governed, say, internally democratically in a democratic society. So the Society of Cincinnati looks non-congruent at least twice over. One is it has a hereditary principle of membership, and another is it takes these American officers and ties them as brothers to people in France rather than to their fellow Americans. Here's where the loyalty question comes into play and all that great stuff. That's right. right. That's right. Um, and this is one of the ongoing sources of conflict between states and organizations. It's one of the reasons why states tend in rationalist directions and are drawn toward kind of congruence arguments because citizens who go around believing, as it were, the wrong things about who their friends are, who their fellows are, those always look like threats to states that depend on a structure of loyalty, a structure of ideological belief among the citizens about their relationship to the state. Now, the Freemasons are fun because if you're very used to the liberal democratic version of this, where we have liberal democratic states that are suspicious of organizations with hereditary membership or organizations with gender discriminatory membership or any of those things, um, then you you feel an attraction toward congruence at least because, well, congruence is at least people taking good liberal democratic values too seriously. But the Freemasons engendered state suspicion across early modern Europe and uh, then later the United States, but across early modern Europe because they were internally, well, roughly speaking, democratic in societies that weren't. Mm. Uh, there were a number of Freemason chapters and lodges that admitted women as full members. And regardless of whether they admitted women as full members, it was the case that membership in the Masonic lodges did not track social class and social standing out in the external world. That is to say, you might be a commoner and rise to the level of master or grandmaster of a lodge and have some nobleman who was subordinate to you in internal lodge purposes. That's not congruent. That teaches people what the aristocratic monarchies think of as bad mental habits about what the right rank and status of the world is. Certainly for there to be women who are equal to men within the lodges, that teaches bad mental habits. It makes them bad citizens of societies that are built on hierarchies of these particular kinds. Or some commoner that can actually lead us in some sort of project. What's that all about? Absolutely. Um, then the fun thing is the Masons traveled to the United States and in the founding generation of the American Revolution and American founding, um, many of the elites, many of the key American founders were members of the Freemasons. And by 30 years later, the Freemasons are an object of great suspicion in the United States. Indeed, there was a time when probably the second largest political party in the United States was the Anti-Masonic Party. Uh, why? Well, the Masons still teach rules of membership and loyalty that aren't congruent with, in this case, the rules of a public liberal democratic order either. They have masters and grandmasters. And free citizens aren't supposed to have masters and grandmasters. They have secrets and members of a freely speaking, freely debating, open society aren't supposed to have secrets and rituals. Uh, and so the suspicion that what people were learning inside the Masonic lodges was hostile to the good habits of Republican citizenship 
very directly mirrored all of the suspicion that there had been of Freemasonry in 18th century Europe when, again, just because they had different internal rules of membership, that made them non-congruent. And again, the Masons are transnational. It's a constitutive part of the of the Masonic order that it's transnational. It's organized into lodges and grand lodges that are national and local and regional. But fundamentally, to be a Freemason is partly to say, I have brothers all over the world. All of my brother Masons are my brothers. And that's an object of suspicion to the political authorities in any state. And so the Masons get hit from both sides for being non-congruent with both kinds of states. And if you, even if a listener thinks today of some conspiracy theories they've heard about world order or whatever we're talking about, they're all these sort of non-congruent ingredients always play into it, right? That this conspiracy theories don't go something along the lines of, uh, you know, Jacob and Alex got together and got a few other people and they're planning to take over the world. It could just be the same amount of people in a room, but now we're calling them, you know, still the Freemasons, actually. We're calling them the Bilderbergs or something, right? Like this is, all of this stuff happens in a modern sense as well with people's, uh, you know, congruence intuition, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, conspicuously and today as well as in the 18th century about Jews, Right. who are understood to have a transnational kind of connection and membership that ties them not to their fellow nationals but to their fellow Jews around the world um, who then get characterized as being the rootless cosmopolitans and the globalists who will undermine the nation-state sovereignty of any of the nation-states that they belong to. Uh, the same is true for suspicion of dual loyalty or disloyalty on the part of Muslim immigrants or second and third generation immigrants to uh, formerly dominantly Christian liberal democratic societies. And the same was traditionally true and remains true today for Catholics in Protestant and especially English-derived Protestant countries uh, who are thought to owe a kind of primary allegiance to Rome and therefore not to be properly fellow nationals, uh, not to th thought to uh, be concerned with a set of rules and laws that are not the rules and laws of a nation state like Canada. So towards the end of your book, you, and the section is called Against Synthesis, and you explain and explore why one should doubt attempts to rise above the distinction between rationalism and pluralism. And I wanted you to comment on that and explain in why the discussion should be more about balance and why we ultimately need both in a liberal society, both tendencies, I should say, rather than just saying we got to organize such and such in a rationalist way or a pluralist way or this way is better than that. To a substantial degree, what we're talking about with respect to these organizations is their relative social power. And social power is a pretty crude thing. It doesn't admit of fine mathematical derivations from philosophical principles about having just so much power and no more. Moreover, to the degree that the pluralist insight about civil society says, we want organizations that have some ability to stand against this tremendously powerful modern institution, the modern Weberian state, we need for there to be organizations that can build that power from somewhere. Organizations build their power from having dedicated membership bases, from having members who are willing to sacrifice, willing to commit, really willing to invest, sometimes willing to stand with their group against state persecution. What it is that builds that is often a kind of social thickness, 
of the group. That is to say, groups that have pretty substantial sets of internal rules, groups that have pretty powerful internal elites who are willing and able to do the organizational work of keeping people on board, of making sure that the group persists over time, over generations, over areas, in the face of a kind of background tendency for people to just stop doing things and drift off into their individual lives. If it's the case that relatively thicker groups are, on the one hand, more likely to be restrictive, more likely to have rules that unduly limit people's freedom of action, freedom of belief, uh, more likely to have powerful internal elites who are able to do this kind of work, and on the other hand are precisely the groups that are able to do the organizational work of standing against state power, then there's no such thing as getting the balance just right. Because just, just to the degree that we need powerful organizations for pluralist reasons, we're going to get powerful organizations that, in, that trigger the justified rationalist or congruence worries about the freedom of members in the face of local rules and local elites. That means that we shouldn't be looking for ways to dissolve the problem. We should be hoping to keep our eyes open on both sides of the problem at the same time, but in a thoroughly non-utopian spirit, understanding that we're not going to get it just right. right, And we're not going to have a society that has precisely as much freedom of association as allows people their freedom to produce their projects and no internal power that leads to unjust local domination. Uh, we're going to have unjust state power and we're going to have unjust internal domination. And that's the shape of the world. And we want to have some awareness about how to check the worst abuses of both. In, in the other episode we did together, we were talking about democracy ultimately, and, and it was a different topic, but there's a parallel here. At some point in the episode, I think you said something like, and ultimately everything we've been talking about today, that's the tricky business of a liberal society. It's that balance. And I'm hearing the same thing here. Like this, We can't get rid of this problem because this is sort of the game. This is the balance. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. This this is the kind of thinker that I am about politics. Uh, I'm I'm not interested in, and I don't really believe in philosophically pure ultimate solutions. Um, I don't think that we can settle the great problems and great great problems and dilemmas of politics in some founding constitutional moment that you get just right. I think that social power creates ongoing problems and gives us a kind of lumpy fabric of society, not a world of individuals and laws of the sort that we might philosophically imagine, but of organizations that overlap and bump into each other and have internal power and check power. And we don't get to be done with the work of paying attention to problems on all sides. And, and it seems that those that might have very strong rationalist tendencies and think that's the way to go, there seems to always be this assumption that, yes, there's rationalist tendencies, but that's because we live in a just society with a just government. <laughs> that is to say that what happens when that government is, is unjust, right? That That's the other thing. It's like, then you have no groups, intermediate groups or other associations, and then what? Yeah, so that, uh, that, that can get us back to civil society as a theme. In James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, um, which is a book I very strongly recommend to listeners. In Seeing Like a State, Scott talks about the 
catastrophes brought about by high modernism and high modernist states seeking to rationalize, seeking to make their social orders transparent to the state, legible to the state, easily governable by the state. And when those high modernist states are joined to great ideological plans, like 20th century kinds of communist imaginations, for example, um, they can lead to thorough human catastrophes. One of the features that Scott says can prevent that, even in the face of state power driven by ideology, is a robust civil society. If there's enough organizational capacity outside the state to resist and to say no, then state excess can be limited in the moments when we really need it to be limited. But what does that mean? It means that there needed to be organizations before the moment of real injustice. It's not that robust civil society is going to spontaneously come into existence precisely when you have an authoritarian or totalitarian government starting to crack down. The organizations needed to have been there. That means presuming that we're moving from a relatively just society to a relatively unjust society, in the earlier time under the relatively just government, or at least the more just government, the organizations were probably there saying no as well. And so the rationalist impulse to say, well, we only need organizations that say no when things go bad, that's sociologically unrealistic. The organizations needed to have been there, mm -hmm. and that means they're going to have been saying no to things that you liked at the earlier time. We don't need them today, but maybe we'll need them tomorrow, and that's when they can create themselves. <laughs> that's right. Not that's, not, that's not how they form. That's right. not how people join and live in them. Right. Well, our time has basically wound down here. But as usual, as you know, we like to give our guests the last word and a chance to tie everything up. So we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle. Let's try and put a finer point on it. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how liberals should think of civil society and, if I may, rationalism, pluralism and freedom? In our societies, in liberal democratic societies, there ought to be a very robust level of freedom of association and civil society. And your first response when encountering organizations and groups that have internal norms and internal rules and habits that differ from the norms, rules, and habits of the general state uh, shouldn't be one of hostility or suspicion. However, that is not your first reaction doesn't mean that it shouldn't be part of your reaction at some point. And there should be an awareness of the risks of local and internal power over the group's own members. Um, even though we value living in liberal pluralistic societies that are going to have a range of ways of life, a range of associational forms, and therefore a range of internal powers that differ from the power of the state. Jacob Levy, thank you very much for being thank with you. me again on The Curious Task. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 